This is Pandemic Planet, the podcast where we talk about the urgent health security threats facing the world, the geopolitical and societal challenges they present, and how the United States can best lead health security efforts abroad while protecting Americans at home. Pandemic Planet is the podcast series of the CSIS Commission on Strengthening America's Health Security. While our sister podcast series, Coronavirus Crisis Update, focuses on what's happening in America, here on Pandemic Planet, we'll look at the global and geopolitical effects of health security threats. Welcome to Pandemic Planet. Hello, I'm Catherine Bliss, Senior Fellow and Director for Immunizations and Health Systems Resilience with the CSIS Global Health Policy Center. And I'm joined today by Dr. Stephanie Williams, who has served as Australia's Ambassador for Regional Health Security since March of 2020. A medical doctor by training, Stephanie has been the Principal Health Specialist at the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade since 2017. She brings experience working with Doctors Without Borders and the World Health Organization, as well as the State of Victoria's Health Office, to her work linking Australian public health and medical institutions with programs focused on health services throughout the Indo-Pacific region. In her current role, she oversees Australia's Regional Vaccine Access and Health Security Initiative and also serves as an alternate member of the Board of the Global Fund to Fight AIDS, Tuberculosis, and Malaria. Stephanie, welcome to Pandemic Planet. Thanks so much. So you assumed your position in March of 2020, just as the pandemic was really getting underway. You had already been at DFAT working on health issues, but what has it been like taking on this new role as ambassador in the midst of a global health security crisis? It's been a privilege and a challenge to do that at this time. March 2020 was exactly the time where, on taking on this new role, one could have imagined extensive regional engagement, travel to countries where Australia works, and cementing relationships which I had developed already with health leaders in the Pacific and to a certain degree in Southeast Asia in my other role as the health specialist at at DFAT. So really thrust what we have been trying to achieve at the Centre for Health Security since 2017 and as Australia in the region for health right into the spotlight and was a terrific opportunity. Obviously, it was very challenging to sustain engagement and interest on so many issues when countries themselves were grappling with their own responses to COVID. So it has been as we all have done in the pandemic, uh, adjusted to different ways of engagement to maximise our relationships and influence. So you probably spent a little more time on Zoom instead of Zooming across the ocean. As we all have. But it looks set to change shortly, hopefully. Well, and I hope we can talk about that. So, Stephanie, I wanted to ask you if you could also explain how does the Australian government define health security? And when you talk about regional health security, what does that mean? I've been working in this space for a long time and what has always been health protection in a public health view of protection, promotion and prevention, what has been pandemic preparedness and communicable disease control over the last couple of decades started to become health security around the security framing of biological threats in the 2000s. At its core, it does still reference the diseases that move across borders 
and the self-interest and shared interest we have in reducing the chance that diseases in country A move and cause harm in other countries. In order to achieve that at a national level, health security requires a bunch of public health core capacities, and we've defined them through multiple iterations of the Joint External Evaluation Framework for the US Global Health Security Agenda. But when you look at those surveillance, a lab system, incident management and an emergency operations capacity, as a health person, as a clinician, you quickly see that those are on the top population level functions that in order to function, need a health system and a community health system and a public health system that reaches people either to prevent disease or treat disease. So whilst we say health security for the Indo-Pacific Health Security Initiative is improving, working with countries to improve their capacity to detect, prevent and respond to infectious diseases. We've all heard that for many years and that is how our investments are shaped against core capacities and regional organisations that support outbreak responses and preventing outbreaks. At the same time, Australia, we are also investing in health systems development and universal health coverage in our region because the two are so connected. You can't have one without the other. But to answer your question much more succinctly, it does come down to detect, prevent and respond for both fast-moving infectious diseases and endemic infectious diseases. So last October, though, a little over a year ago, the Australian government launched the Regional Vaccine Access and Health Security Initiative, which, as I understand it, is a more than $500 million three-year program to support access to COVID-19 vaccines in the Pacific, Timor-Leste, and some countries in Southeast Asia. So you've already touched a little bit on the Health Security Initiative from 2017, but could you talk about the inspiration behind this new initiative, really bringing the health security and vaccine access together? How does it build on pre-existing activities and what are Australia's priority partner countries in the region? So we did in October last year announce the $523 million vaccine access and health security initiative to partner with countries in Southeast Asia and the Pacific with the goal of supporting comprehensive coverage of COVID vaccine in the Pacific and Timor-Leste and making a contribution to that aim in Southeast Asia. It has subsequently expanded through Australia's participation with the Quad Vaccine Initiative, where we increased our contribution to Southeast Asia by $100 million to support the delivery of COVID vaccines in Southeast Asia. In so many ways, it built on our existing relationships in health and health security with our partner countries, but it required a huge step up in some of the ways we engage, especially with health ministries and partners in Southeast Asia. Australia's always been closely connected and on the ground in implementation in health support in the Pacific and Timor and supported outbreak responses directly in the region over the last 18 months as well. In Southeast Asia, we have principally worked regionally. And and the important part, I think, of the Health Security Initiative, part of the announcement from October last year, was our contribution to the ASEAN Centre for Public Health Emergencies and Emerging Infectious Diseases. Within the $523 million, which is principally about vaccine access and delivery and end-to-end support, there was this component to really get behind the ASEAN vision of a regional institution to support growth in the way that ASEAN countries do surveillance, exchange laboratory information. Now, it's 
very early stages, but it's an important part of how we have seen the region in this initiative. So I want to talk a little bit about COVAX, which is the vaccine pillar of the Access to COVID-19 Tools Accelerator or ACT Accelerator. COVAX is focused on globally equitable distribution of vaccines, but you know, within the larger ACT-A context of therapeutics and diagnostics. Now, the original goal for COVAX was to deliver roughly 2 billion vaccine doses to member countries by you know, the end of this year. But the actual numbers are far lower so far. I mean, it's closer to 450 million or so. Some of this, of course, is because of export controls imposed in India, where many of the contracted doses were to have been manufactured. But it's also because some of the high-income countries have more successfully negotiated purchases, and you know, so there hasn't been as much success on the part of the lower-income countries for making those buys. So I just wanted to ask if you could say a bit about how Australia has engaged with COVAX, kind of beyond some of this work with the, the Indo-Pacific Initiative and the ASEAN work, how has Australia engaged with COVAX and what steps is the government taking to provide surplus vaccine through COVAX? And, you know, just your sense, you know, how confident are you that COVAX will be able to scale up delivery of vaccines in 2022? So Australia was an early contributor to the COVAX advanced market commitment, that part of the facility that was subsidising or well, providing free vaccines for the um, 92 developing countries. So in total, we've contributed 130 million Australian dollars, which is around 100 million US dollars. And that was 80 in August last year and, and a further 50 at the June 2021 replenishment hosted by Japan. And we've always supported COVAX in its goal of a multilateral solution to equitable vaccine access. Now, through Australia's regional vaccine access initiative, we have pledged a dose-sharing commitment of around 60 million doses to those countries, the 17 countries in the Southeast Asia and the Pacific region of which 40 million is from the Australian manufactured AstraZeneca vaccine and up to 20 through a purchase agreement with UNICEF as part of a multilateral procurement effort. Now, in doing so, we've been able to deliver almost 6 million doses to countries in Southeast Asia and the Pacific to date. In Fiji, almost a million at 980,000. I think 86% of their population is now double vaxxed. And in Timor, about 500,000 doses and almost half of their population double vaxxed. But in, in doing so, we're also coordinating daily, it feels like, and sometimes twice a day with partners involved in a similar effort. That includes the Gavi and the COVAX partners who work in PNG, who work in Southeast Asia. It involves the coordination of dose sharing with our quad partners with COVAX too. But what bilateral dose sharing has enabled Australia to do is be a responsive direct partner in our region. And we do have a very regionally focused health assistance program in the development program. We are aware and in conversation with COVAX around how we can work with COVAX as a dose-sharing mechanism, as I know several countries are doing, COVAX playing the role of coordination and procurement and delivery. So Australia is very much a part of those discussions and when making our bilateral commitments, are putting those on the table to inform the COVAX coordination effort as well in our region. And as you look ahead to 2022 and beyond, I mean, we know that, you know, of the vaccine doses globally that have been distributed, the vast majority have been in the high and upper middle income countries. 
with sub-Saharan Africa still hovering at four or five percent kind of across the board with, with some communities yet to, to see any vaccines at all. How confident are you that the global community will really be able to come together to expand that access globally over the next you know, 12 to 18 months? What, what do you think it will take? I was encouraged by a presentation I saw recently from the head of Airfinity around the available doses and their calculation by looking at production capacity surplus from high-income countries over the next six to eight months to be enough to meet our 70% coverage target that was put forward at the Biden summit not long ago, and that is agreed by WHO and partners. And increasingly, I think the issue is it's always been supply to a extent of, of the sharing and the equitable distribution from the source. But really, I think the world is up to the challenge. The degree of the bottleneck in the absorption, the 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 very practical challenges that face the order delivery administration chain, which we've always known existed, but we really have focused so much on the supply production part of the equation for so long. I think that is where we're really going to have to work harder and better together to make sure we know if there are enough doses in the world on a per capita basis to get them to the right places. There are some encouraging signs of change. I think the pace, even from our own program in Australia, the quantity and frequency of our deliveries is increasing. And that is reasonably expected from some of the other donators of shared vaccines or surplus vaccines also. One issue that we've certainly seen a lot of here in the United States and to a certain extent in other parts of the world is the issue of vaccine hesitancy or, or confidence in vaccines. And, you know, we know this had already been a challenge before the pandemic. You know, in 2019, the World Health Organization listed vaccine hesitancy as among one of its top threats to global health. But as we think about, you know, available supply of vaccine and really working to address the distribution challenges, are you concerned that there are populations that may, for diverse reasons, reject access to vaccines or really kind of continue to be hesitant about products either coming in from other countries or new technologies and that kind of thing? I mean, we're always concerned and we're always working actively, both through our investments and our partnerships, to fund the right kind of either research or study or engagement or intervention on the vaccine confidence spectrum. For example, some of our partners in PNG did an early qualitative survey of some of the reasons why people were hesitant and have adjusted their communication, particularly to healthcare workers as a result. There were other partners who conducted rapid formative assessments with UNICEF to say, well, between healthcare providers and caregivers, what do you think about a COVID vaccine? So there are ways in which we have anticipated and, and funded questions and answers and interventions to be cognizant of hesitancy and deliver differently as a result. I also think we have observed very different patterns of the swing towards vaccine acceptance in countries in our region. So in, say, in Fiji earlier this year, we were hearing what we've all seen, social media commentary, public sentiment with question marks. And there were a handful of great public-facing education campaigns and seminars. And actually, as supply increased, demand increased. So we saw what we didn't quite expect in Fiji, which was as, you, as your campaign rolls out, they were able to achieve their goals. Now, 
we have to be pragmatic and realistic about the upper limits of vaccine coverage in so many settings. And we can't be blind, as you say, to historically, there are parts of the population that are always difficult to convince. But over the next 18 months or two years, it's incumbent on us as partners and in this effort to do everything we can to understand and attempt to address those concerns. And a lot of it comes down to the time spent in person with that healthcare provider in the community to answer questions, to talk to individuals. We need time and people in so many settings to address that. So I want to switch to something that's happening this week. The board of the Global Fund to Fight AIDS, Tuberculosis, and Malaria is meeting, and you serve as an alternate member on the board. So thank you for taking time out of all of those meetings to come and, and speak here today. But you know, the Global Fund is playing a significant role in the COVID-19 response. It's a co-lead on the diagnostics pillar of the ACT Accelerator, and it's one of the few global organizations with quite a bit of experience delivering antiviral medications. So, you know, conceivably will play a role or could play a role in distributing therapeutics for COVID-19 as they become more available. And, you know, through the COVID-19 response mechanism, the fund has supported countries not just in responding to the coronavirus, but also in just maintaining continuity of care at the primary and community level you know, for services that have been at risk for being disrupted during the pandemic. Now, the Australian government has made, a, I think, $242 million commitment to support the fund and its efforts to strengthen laboratory capacities and diagnosis of infectious diseases, you know, including the three key ones, but also COVID-19 in countries, you know, around the Asia-Pacific region. So I just wanted to ask you, you know, to say a bit about the direction you see the fund going over the next period. I mean, it's its work has really expanded quite a bit during this period. And do you expect the mandate to to like permanently change or significantly expand to more explicitly take on pandemic response and health system strengthening in, in the years ahead? So the direction of the Global Fund will and is shaped by the executive, the secretariat and the board. And the board consists uniquely of 10 seats of implementer partners, countries that receive and deliver grants from the Global Fund, or with the Global Fund, I should say, and the donor group, part of the board membership of 10 of the 20 seats. Your question about mandate, in the strategic framework for 2023 to 2028, that was approved by the board a couple of months ago. Um, and we're currently discussing the narrative that comes with that strategy. That framework, a nice single page diagram, has the ending the three diseases at the centre, as well as putting people and communities at the centre of all our efforts to end the three diseases. But importantly, right in there as a contributory objective is pandemic preparedness and response. I absolutely agree that the agility and quality of the way in which the Global Fund has enabled COVID response at the same time of attempting to mitigate the impact of the pandemic on the other three pandemics in 2020 and into 2021 has been remarkable. And, you know, if you'll permit me just a reflection of some of the quantities, I, I just saw it this morning in terms of every year, roughly about $4 billion they program in AIDS, TB and malaria grants. And over the last year, they have 
programmed more than $3 billion, thanks largely to the US donation to the C19RM, but to other countries as well, at the same time. So doubling the administration and programming of health grants in a single year during a pandemic is no mean feat. And I, and I think that what's what I can reflect on is the when you need to get into a country and with a country in partnership with a group of people that are used to programming national health grants and reaching into national parts of health systems and into the community, the Global Fund was uniquely positioned to do that. And as you said, they have previously acknowledged their role beyond the three diseases. I think we've got an, we're still very much in an acute phase and it has been put there as an evolving objective of the Global Fund, recognising that their role is part of the ACT-A partnership, which in a way is part of the extent to which the world sees and acts according to the needs identified in some of the replenishment cases that have recently been put. So personally, I would hope that they do see a continued role In fact, and I'll finish here by saying, when Australia's Centre for Health Security was established, we were very focused on the need to be integrated between how we saw fast-moving epidemic diseases and endemic diseases and integrate our approach to infectious disease system resilience. And I think the Global Fund has demonstrated exactly how relevant that is. And I guess we'll see how the board discussions go this week and, and then there's a replenishment coming in 2022, right? So really see how, how it may be situated to really take on some of these greater challenges in, in the next work phase. So today is November 8th, and the United States has just today opened up travel to vaccinated foreign tourists for the first time in nearly two years. Australia, too, is starting to relax lockdowns and social distancing requirements, and it's beginning to open to international travel. And that after quite a long period of stringent movement restrictions and quarantine requirements. So, you know, what do you see as some of the issues to manage, I guess, from your role, you know, in terms of communicating expectations, maybe to some extent to residents in Australia, you know, who have you know, we'll be seeing people coming in for the first time in a while. And also to people coming from other countries. Um, do you expect to see any confusion or frustration by tourists to the extent that they can move around or which vaccines may be accepted or not? And, and if there is a surge of COVID-19 cases and a decision is made to tighten restrictions again, how do you expect people to react after, after this extended period? And I saw a picture this morning in the paper of people at Heathrow actually dressed fully in their Stars and Stripes outfit, ready to travel to New York. And you can feel that sense of excitement in part, you know, as some parts of the world can return to normal, the old normal. I think from Australia's I mean, health requirements have been part of moving between countries forever and a day from the, you know, the quarantine ships with the red flags off in the, off Italy hundreds and hundreds of years ago to the pre-COVID declaration 
in coming to Australia, for example, that you hadn't been in Africa in the last six days as a sign that you were unlikely to be carrying a yellow fever infection and present a biosecurity risk to Australia. So I think what we have seen in COVID and health negative testing was one of the first requirements countries put on and then VAX certification and approval or recognition of vaccines being the latest. But on the back of that system, in all of these requirements, Australia uses many channels to communicate with countries and with individuals from other countries. And we recently updated all our travel advice on Smart Traveller, which is Australia's home of information for Australians going overseas and for people coming to Australia. So while it's not a new task per se, there has been something interesting about what the policy position Australia has taken on the difference between the vaccines approved for use in Australia and the vaccines recognised as a complete course being fully vaccinated in coming to Australia. And our Therapeutic Goods Administration just put up a very clear, transparent methodology of how they have said, okay, these are the vaccines approved for use. If you've got them in offshore, you come to Australia, fine. Here are vaccines that are not approved for use in Australia, but we recognise to be equivalent in terms of our public health goals, which are practically to reduce the probability an individual travels with the disease and reduce the probability an individual will need tertiary health care when they're in Australia. So I think that one that has been clear and has been captured in the press about which vaccines are recognised, Covaxin, Sinovac as an example, the information on how those decisions is public and available and a small part that we at the Centre for Health Security have played, for example, in bringing posts and partners in Southeast Asia and the Pacific together as we held a seminar last week from one of the TGA doctors involved in that policy talking with our regional counterparts. It's one example of many ways in which we are communicating health requirements. To your second part of your question, how do you prepare for the uncertainty that lies ahead in terms of the changing nature of restrictions or lockdowns or responses to the now variants or the future variants? And I think we've learnt so much up until now that we at least can plan for the eventualities of those scenarios. So we've been here and we can sort of incorporate that for people coming to Australia, that decisions that governments take, should there be a reason to lock down again, are communicated quickly and early, usually with notice for people to change plans and move, and a series of procedures that enable individuals to ask questions, seek review of of various decisions, not without their challenges. But I think our lessons from the past set us up okay for the future. I mean, you know, here over the past two years, we've really seen that there's not one element of this pandemic that hasn't been politicized one way or the other. And we've seen the science in particular really questioned and debated and magnified through social media and and really uh, become tied up with larger debates about personal liberties and individual responsibilities versus the common good and and many of these these questions that have been circulating around public health for as you've said I mean hundreds of years going back to quarantines and in the black black death in Italy you know back in the 1400s but you know to what extent has the science around vaccines and some of these mandates been politicized in the Australian context and do you see I guess, opportunities for rethinking or expanding some of the ways that you communicate about science and health 
to you know not just the not just the domestic public, but you know within as you, you know, talked about some of these communications with posts and and with other countries as well. Do you see an opening for kind of new ways of engaging on on science and health in this context? You know, on reflection, I think we have been very fortunate in Australia around the science-based leadership that we have seen at all levels of government, from state to federal, especially in the early days, through efforts to have a national cabinet where decision-making between federal and state governments, which is usually saved up for a few moments in the year, was brought together on a weekly basis in the early phases of the COVID response. And there was great effort to highlight the degree to which the public health and medical opinion and um, was informing policy. And I, I actually think that it's been less politicised in Australia on some of the key areas that we see politicised in other countries on um, vaccine mandates or freedom of movement. And in a way, through the strength of some of the committee systems and institutions and the ways of working that has been part of infectious diseases and health in Australia for so long. And the other thing that helps, I think, is that our system of universal health coverage, that individuals can seek and access affordable health care and in, in for COVID over the last 18 months, largely free at primary and, and tertiary um, facilities, that helps as well in an environment where things are changing quickly or the evidence is changing quickly. At the end of the day, if you know that if you need help, you can get good quality healthcare for free, informed by public health advice. I think that has set Australia up well. I don't think it means there's nothing to improve on in the future. And certainly what's been interesting is the degree to which the state's have moved at different paces on some of the big decisions opening up freedom of movement, vaccine c- coverage thresholds um, in order to allow the, the lessening of restrictions. And I'll just finish with a final observation. I think we have managed, and this was a reflection given to us by a senior immunisation expert in Australia who's been working in the space for decades, We have the press largely on board with the importance of bipartisan approaches to vaccination of public health support since the late 80s, early 90s, and probably triggered around the time we had to do a big measles catch-up campaign in the early 90s. We have a favourable environment in the communication space, which just enables the discussion of particular vaccines, I think, to, to be the majority rational and informed by evidence. Well, speaking of preparing for the future and thinking about potentially future pandemics, you know, you have written and spoken in various venues about how COVID-19 you know, really could be seen as an opportunity to invest in the future if there's any silver lining coming out of this. It, it could be a call to, call to action. At the same time, you know, you've said that pandemic preparedness will always be about people's access to the most basic of healthcare systems. Now, last summer, or this past June, I guess July, the independent high-level panel recommended $15 billion a year over five years or so to enhance pandemic planning and response. 
And while at the recent G20 meetings, we saw a lot of good acknowledgments about the importance of joint planning and international collaboration, the G20 health and finance ministers went so far as to create a task force, but they really stopped short of making specific funding commitments and kind of pushed that off to 2022 or beyond. So, you know, what, as you've talked about pandemic preparedness, really needing to be rooted in, in this primary healthcare system. So as you look at the G20 and, and at what countries are doing to prepare for future pandemics, what should countries be thinking about and, and putting into place? And how optimistic are you that the global community will get things right in this next phase of operations? So I agree every crisis is an opportunity and there have been huge achievements in the last 18 months that I think we can reflect on at the same time of recognising that it's so. it feels like today there is quite a way to go. So the acute phase in 2021, this is not the 2021 we expected. And I keep saying we're, we're actually in a COVID era. We're in a multi-year acute event. And, and the starkness of The Economist's projections on the multiple of deaths that they put out last week, you know, the count is 5 million. Their estimation is up to about 15 million deaths, just highlights that as a globe, we're still very much on the up here, the up being the escalation in crisis of COVID. I mean, you ask what countries should be thinking about now in terms of preparing for the future, because at the same time, whilst we're in a COVID crisis, and as any country, we are at different stages of waves, peaks, interventions. We don't have the luxury of really uh, waiting until COVID is over to prepare better for the next time. But at the same time, we've also, and I can speak from our region under the you know Asia-Pacific Strategy for Emerging Diseases, which is an initiative of the Western Pacific Regional Office and Southeast Asian of WHO, over the last 10 to 15 years has been a, a continuum of capacity building in various capacities. So whilst we have this kind of real wake-up call from COVID, we also recognise that countries have been systematically improving some of their capacities over recent times, and they worked to a certain extent. They were pulled into countries' COVID responses with good effect in many places. You know, there are big unknowns, and one of our challenges is the extent to which we plan for future pandemics based on the COVID one, or what can we you know, incorporate into a, a more inclusive view of emerging infectious disease preparedness. Our timeline on how long it takes to come to a global new financing mechanism, for example, you mentioned the high-level panel report and the G20 task force. I think we always expect these things to happen faster than they than they do when we look back. So, you know, in Ebola in 2016 and 17, those reviews and the practical changes from the multiple reviews of Ebola took multiple years to come into effect. And I think what we're seeing here in COVID is this, the response needs to be bigger. We agree there's, an, a, there's a financing gap for preparedness generally and a financing gap for the COVID response. And, and that, that has to be met beyond overseas development assistance to be thinking around how we finance global public goods, how we as a global community come together in response and preparedness investment and what are the 
roles we want WHO to take, how we want the multilateral development banks to work with other partners, and then recognising as well the the call for the new financial intermediary fund um, that the US announced at the pandemic is a first of what I think will be many steps. So I'm not without hope that we will come together as a global community with some improvements to how we work together and how we fund pandemics in the future. But I also recognise that there's so many balls in the air that we do need to do it in a way that maximises our impact, which is to see all the proposals on the table for their own merit, but bring them together in something that actually works. And that has a bit of a way to go, I think. Dr. Stephanie Williams, Ambassador for Regional Health Security in Australia. Thank you for sharing your thoughts today on Australia's global health engagement in the Indo-Pacific region, access to vaccines and vaccine distribution globally, the future of global institutions like the Global Fund to support countries in preparing for pandemics while strengthening health systems, and really, you know, outlining a series of steps and urging us to be patient as we think about all the different proposals and address the acute phase of the pandemic while preparing for future pandemics. Well, thanks for having me. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog 